Friends, when we come to Jesus, when we are invited to come to Jesus, all that we can bring to him is our sin. Some people think they can bring to Jesus a cleaned up life that they need to clean up before they come to Jesus. Uh, something that they, they need to have a particular behavior set aside before they can come to Jesus. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that what we need to bring to Jesus is our life of sin. And the grace of God is greater than our sin. And it is the grace of God that will enable us to overcome our sin. And it is the grace of God by which we are accepted into the presence of God. And this morning, as we have already sung, this morning, as we have already prayed, this morning, as we have already displayed through the Lord's Supper uh, the grace of God, this morning, I invite us to open Scripture to perhaps one of the most well-known. Um, if it's not the most well-known for you, I encourage you to make it well-known. Um, perhaps I encourage you to even consider memorizing this pa passage that we're about to read this morning. It is just that good. It's just that helpful to understand the grace of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Titus. And uh, if you are new to our congregation, and we take one passage at a time, uh, a few verses at a time, we work through it. And our hope is to try to understand what this whole book of Titus is about. And this morning, we are working our way through chapter 2. You may find this passage on page number 998. Here's the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking the Lord to speak to our hearts through this passage? Father, we are grateful to you, for indeed you have lavished your grace upon us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us Christ. We thank you that you have given us your word. It's a word that speaks clearly about your grace. Would you help us understand your truth now? Would you speak to our hearts in a way that is clear, in a way that would subdue any rebellious impulses of our own understanding, any rebellious impulses of our own hearts? Father, we pray that your grace would be greater than our own rebellion, of our, greater than our own ignorance, we pray that you would sanctify us and speak to us. In the name of Christ, 
for his glory, we pray. Amen. Well, Pastor, friends, I, I mentioned that this passage, if you, uh, if you are not familiar with it, is worth memorizing just as well and knowing it just as well as you know Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. As a matter of fact, if you want two Bible references that would speak clearly about the doctrine of grace, it would be Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and then Titus 2, 11 through 14. The text we have before us is part of a larger section that started in chapter 2, verse 1, and ends in chapter 3, verse 8. This longer section is filled with specific commands pertaining to the Christian life. If you were here last week, remember how chapter 2 started. But as for you, says Paul to Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine? Interestingly, is not simply sound doctrine, but it's also a behavior and attitudes that reflect the new life we have received from God. In verses 2 to 10 of chapter 2, we have specific instructions that are given to older men, older women, younger women, and younger men, and also to bond servants. If we look ahead at what comes in chapter 3, we notice that there will be more specific instructions pertaining to how Christians should live, how we should live in relationship to authorities, how we should live in relationship to one another. In other words, God cares about how we live, and He has given us instructions in the Bible, clear instructions about how to live. But what is the foundation of these Bible instructions about Christian living? Why should we live in a particular way as opposed to other ways? Why does this matter to God? Why should it matter to us? On one side, we might say, well, because God commands it, and that's enough. And friends, that would be true. It would be true. God has the right to command us how to live. But this passage tells us a deeper understanding of why these instructions matter. They're not just the commands of God. They also matter because of what the grace of God does in us. The grace of God is the reason why we are commanded to live differently. So as we look this morning at this passage that, that emphasizes the work of the grace of God in us, let's understand and let's look at four major truths that Paul speaks to us about the grace of God. Specifically, what the grace of God does in us. First truth that we see in this passage is actually not so much what the grace of God has done in us as, a ma as much as what the grace of God, has, of God has done for us. Here's the first truth. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Look at verse 11. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. 
Now, what is this grace of God referring to? What is this great, the appearance of the grace of God referring to? It's referring to the appearing of Jesus Christ. The grace of God is saving grace. It brings salvation for all people because of what Jesus Christ has done. Look at verse 14 that gives us more details about how is it that this grace of God brings salvation for all people. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself us gave himself for us to redeem us. This is why the grace of God is saving. This is why the grace of God brings salvation, because of what Jesus has done. The grace of God is offered to us freely and to all people. But it's not a cheap grace. The grace of God came not simply as a declaration. The grace of God came and appeared not simply as a decision that God simply made. Let's say, well, I'm just going to declare you free. I am just going to declare you no longer guilty. I'm just going to make this declaration. And that declaration is the appearance of the grace of God. It's actually not that. When Paul speaks about the appearance of the grace of God, he doesn't speak merely about a decree, a decision. He speaks specifically about that appearance as the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ makes the grace of God appear, made manifest, made visible. Now, we know even in the Old Testament, that even before the coming of Christ, we know that God has shown His grace in various ways. But in the most clear and visible way, the grace of God has been made manifest in the person and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that the grace of God, dear friends, is not cheap. It is freely given to all, but it is not cheap because it involved the giving of the life of the Son of God so that our salvation could be made available. And that salvation is available and declared to all people. What's interesting about this verse is that when Paul speaks about the grace of God, which brings salvation to all people, which is connected to the and appeared in the ministry of Jesus Christ, what's most amazing about this phrase is the very first word about verse 11. The word for. For the grace of God has appeared. This word for is a strong indication that what comes in verse 11 actually is connected with what came before verse 11. In other words, verse 11 is the reason why Titus was supposed to teach not just sound doctrine, but also the Christian behavior that should flow from sound doctrine. In other words, the Christian living is an outflow of the right understanding of the appearance of the grace of God. Why should we live in a way that Titus, uh, that we have here in Titus 2 through 10? For the grace of God has appeared. 
That's why. In other words, the reason why we can give instructions to one another about godly living is because the grace of God has appeared and brings salvation to all people. Now, most, most people, even in church, stop here when we think about the grace of God. The primary thing we would say, or people would say, the grace of God is that it brings salvation for all people. And that would be true. The problem is that Paul keeps going further. There's more to say about the grace of God than merely the fact that the grace of God brings salvation to all people. So here's point two about the grace of God. Grace of God trains us. Grace of God trains us. Go verse 11 and 12. Again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We agree to that. We embrace that. But the next part is training us. I wonder if you have thought, my dear friend, about the grace of God being a trainer. In a way, Paul uses this language, personifies the grace of God as if he was a person. This language of the grace of God training us. The grace of God being our trainer. This action of, of training us, the word that Paul uses for it is a word that oftentimes is used for educating children. Parents educating children or the training children receive to grow into adulthood. The action of training us, providing instruction for informed and responsible living. This word for training us was used by Stephen in the book of Acts when Stephen recounted the story of Moses uh, or the story of Israel and gets to Moses and speaks about Moses, how uh, Moses was, has been educated in all the culture of the Egyptians. Moses has been educated in all the culture of the Egyptians. And the word used there for Moses' education is the same word that Paul uses here for the grace of God who trains us. In other words, the grace of God who educates us. The grace of God who um, molds us. The grace of God who instructs us. The grace of God who tells us how we should live so that we would grow into maturity. Now let me pause here and let this truth sink in. There are many Christians who live with the impression that the grace of God is only about accepting us as we are. Now, it is true, it is true, dear friends, that because of the grace of God, we can come to God as we are. Sinners, rebellious, enemies of God. And there's no reason for us to try to pretend that we are anything other than that when we come to God. It's the grace of God that meets us and encounters us while we are still dead in our sin, while we are still lifeless toward God in our nature. And the grace of God doesn't say, I want you first to come to life and start acting up like the way you should, and then I am going to present you acceptable before God. That is not how the grace of God encounters us. 
The grace of God encounters us in the depthness of our sin, in the lifelessness of our death in sin. And despite our rebellion and ignorance and self-centered ways, the grace of God comes to us and brings us life, makes us acceptable to God, makes us one, alive with Christ, so that we can be presented before Him, acceptable. It is by grace that we are made alive with Christ. So in that sense, it is true, dear friends, the grace of God makes us acceptable to God as we are so that we can come to Him. So that as we come to God, God will not meet us in His wrath, in His, in His judgment, but He will meet us through His grace by bringing us life. But once He brings us life, the grace of God doesn't stop. The grace of God becomes our trainer. He wants to train us. He wants to educate us. He wants to instruct us to live. In, 19, in 1880, a book was published in Britain entitled The School of Grace. The author wrote, Grace not only saves, but undertakes our training. So all Christians become learners in the school of grace. Friends, do you realize that the grace of God has both of these roles? Not only to bring us to God as we are, so we don't have to pretend to be something we're not, but also to train us, to shape us, to instruct us, so we don't remain the way we are. There are Christians who refuse the second role of the grace of God. There are Christians who refuse to receive training from God's grace. They just want the acceptance part of the grace of God without the training agenda of the grace of God. Friends, that is just not possible. It's like rebellious children or youth who would tell their parents, I don't, want, I don't mind you being my parents. I just don't want you to tell me how to live. Friends, first of all, that is foolish. Second of all, that alone works against the way God has made parents be for us. Because God has given parents a God-given responsibility to educate us, to train us. The parents are God's means of showing us how to live a life in God's path. So it is impossible, it is foolish, it is it is unrealistic to think and say, I don't mind you to be my parents, I just don't want you to tell me how to live. Well, that is at the very heart of what it means to be a parent for a child. Not just to bring life to that child, but to be the instructor for that child. The grace of God does the same, both bringing us life and training us into maturity and to adulthood, spiritually speaking. 
So the grace of God has appeared. Second truth, the grace of God trains us. Third truth, the grace of God trains us what to give up. The, train, the grace of God trains us what to give up. Notice the passage, the text, training us, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Notice, what are we to give up? What is the grace of God training us for? To give up certain things. And those certain things are ungodliness and worldly passions. Let's talk about each of these briefly. Ungodliness begins with our lack of reverence for God, when in our own hearts we don't care about what God says. Ungodliness is any action or any attitude that does not match with God's instructions and God's desires for us. Any action or attitude against God's Word could fit under the category of ungodliness. Paul says that the grace of God trains us to give that up. Friends, there are many manifestations of ungodliness. I wonder if there are any of those manifestations of ungodliness in your own life right now. Are there things that you know God says you should not do, but you keep doing, or you keep thinking, or you keep desiring? By the authority that God has given me to speak on his behalf, I exhort you this morning, give it up. Right now. Give it up. Say no to it. Turn your back against it. Renounce ungodliness. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Why would you want to hold on in your own heart or in your own actions to that which God promises that His wrath will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness? But there's something else. The grace of God trains us to renounce not just ungodliness, but worldly passions. Not just actions, but feelings and desires. Yes, the grace of God trains us how to give up. Not just actions, but certain desires and passions. The word for passions in and of itself in the, in the New Testament is not necessarily a bad word by its dictionary definition. But oftentimes, this particular word, epithumia, is used in the New Testament for desires over things which God forbids. It is used often, not exclusively, but most often used for sinful cravings, for lust for desire for sex outside of marriage, for drunkenness, and for all desires for sinful actions. Romans 6, 12 to 14 says the following, 
Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Friends, recognize that before we act sinfully, we feel sinfully. Before we commit an act of sin, we actually are, are agreeing to follow a sinful passion, a sinful craving, a sinful desire. So Paul goes on and says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are no longer under law, but under grace. Do you see how Paul connects grace, being under grace, with the result, with the benefit, with the fruit of the fact that we no longer live to sin. To live under grace means not that we live by just accepting our sinful life, our sinful choices. To be a church that is filled with God's grace doesn't mean that we close our eyes to sinfulness, but rather that we live a life that reflects the freedom that God has brought us from sin. The, we live a life that, that reflects the instruction that the grace of God gives to renounce ungodliness and sinful passions. Friends, to be under grace means that we understand and accept the training of grace. Training that teaches us to say no to worldly passions. Friends, I wonder how many Christians fall for believing that feeling good about something must mean that it is right to pursue. That just because the desire is so strong and so good, therefore, it must mean it must be God's thing for me because that makes me happy. Oh, friends, in those feelings, in those passions, we also become slaves to our own cravings and thus we become following our own sinful desires. The grace of God trains us to renounce both ungodliness and our desires which enslave us, our desires which lead us to sinful actions. In order to renounce them, in order to renounce anything, let me be clear, we must know it. You can't renounce that which you don't know. So a first step about renouncing ungodliness or worldly passions is can you spot it out? Do you see it? You can't renounce that which you are ignorant of. You can't renounce that which you can't identify. How can you spot out sinful cravings in your own life? How can you spot out if certain passions are sinful? Well, first of all, let me start with a few suggestions, and this is not an exhaustive list of suggestions. Do you desire anything that God forbids? Are you setting your life, your desires, your affections for that which God forbids? To find out what those things are, it would be very helpful if you started reading the Bible. And if you started looking at the things that God forbids, say, well, that's, that's a lot to read. Yeah. 
God has given us a lot of stuff to know about His will so that we don't live in ignorance of His will. But let me give you some more specifics if that answer was not satisfactory for you. Sinful passions are those that gratify your, sin- your selfish desires. Sinful passions are those that gratify your sinful, I'm sorry, your selfish, me-centered desires. Sinful passions are those that enslave you. Sinful passions are those that make you a slave of them. Sinful passions are those that lead you to actions that dishonor God. Actions that make you act against His ways. Sinful passions are those that drive a wedge between you and God. Sinful passions are those that drive a wedge between you and God's people. Sinful passions are those that drive a wedge between you and God's Word. The last one I want to say, not not that this is the last one in general, but this is the one I have prepared. Sinful passions are those that cause tension between you and your relationships. In John, in 1 John 2.15, we have a number of things that, that the author says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Sinful cravings. Say no to them. Renounce them. I wonder if you've ever thought, dear friends, that God's grace is a trainer specifically to train you and instruct you and come alongside you to encourage you what to say no to. Can I give you a caution? We may not always see all the things that are ungodly in our own lives. We may not catch all the worldly passions that we have become enslaved to. But by the grace of God, He has given other Christians to be around us, to watch us. God often uses other Christians to help us spot out those moments or those elements of ungodliness or uh, or worldly passions that we can't see it in ourselves. So by the grace of God, we can renounce them. God gives us the church so we can live in a community where we watch over one another with care, with love, so we can encourage one another against ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God trains us to renounce, to give up things. But the grace of God also, the next point, point four, the grace of God trains us how to live now. It's not just that the grace of God says, here's how you should not live. It's also the positive. Instead, here's how you should live. Four subpoints of how we should live. How the grace of God trains us how to live. Look at verse 12 again. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Four ways in which the, the Spirit, I mean the grace of God, instructs us how to live in the present age. 
self-controlled lives. We have already seen this word self-control so many times by now in the book of Titus. It was mentioned three times in verses 2 to 6. Titus was to teach older men to be self-controlled, or older women to teach younger women to live self-controlled lives. Titus was to teach younger men how to live self-controlled lives. And now we are told that it is the same grace of God that trains us to live self-controlled lives. The word upright means living rightly in the sight of God. Friends, this is one of those big umbrella words. Living rightly in the sight of God. It's as if you're saying, I want to live in such a way that I know God watches me every step of the way. And every step of the way is right and pleasing to Him. Living upright lives. Another one, if that word was not enough, he gives another characteristic. Living godly lives. Uh, This word is exact opposite of what we were supposed to give up. Give up ungodliness. Instead, pursue a life of godliness. To live a life of godliness means to live a life that's devoted to God. Friends, such kind of living is not just for pastors and spiritual leaders in the church, but for all Christians. It's the grace of God who trains us to live in this way. And this kind of living is for the present time. Some people put off godly living until they're later in life. They say, oh, I'll be godly when I grow into retirement. You know, and when all these passions of the world, when I'm able to enjoy life and really take it easy, and then when I retire, um, I'll start living, you know, in a more godly way. Oh, friends, that is not what the Apostle Paul says. Rather, he speaks about living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We don't know tomorrow what will happen. In the present, in this time. And then there's something else in verse 13 that says, He trains us not only to live in the present time, it's for the now, but it's also with a longing for the return of Christ. The grace of God trains us to live in the present by looking forward to what's coming. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The SV translates this phrase as um, waiting for. Now, that phrase could be misleading if you put the wrong spin on it. For some people, waiting means I'm not going to do anything until this other thing happens. Well, that is not what Paul wants us to understand. The waiting, the idea of waiting here is looking forward to, getting ready for. Uh, You might say, we're waiting to ask for some guests. We're waiting for them. I'm getting the house ready for them. We're preparing for them. I'm not just sitting and doing nothing. I'm looking forward. I'm getting ready for it. In that sense, Paul speaks of this life that is lived in the present, self-controlled, upright, godly, but also looking forward, preparing, wanting, yearning for the appearance of the great God and and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God trains us, dear friends, trains us to live our lives by waiting for the coming of Christ, by looking forward to it. Friends, this is the ultimate hope for our Christian living. 
For Christians, this hope is a source of joy. This hope is a source of blessedness. We don't look, our hope is not just to have a better job. Our hope is not just to have a, a better um, house. Our hope is not just to have a better relationship. Our hope is not just to be more fulfilled in this life. Our blessed hope for the Christian is the appearing of Christ. Jesus is described here as both our Savior, but also as our great God. Notice that these, both of these descriptions apply to Jesus. Some interpreters think that we have here the appearance of God, the Father, and the appearance of, of Jesus, the Son. No, here actually both the word our great God and Savior applies to Jesus. The one who appears again is Jesus. The one who will come again is Jesus. So in one sense, we have here a statement of the divinity of Jesus. He is our great God and Savior. Dear loved ones, do you look forward to the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? If you are a Christian, and this is not what you look forward to, then realize the grace of God has some training to do in your life. The grace of God wants to train you to be looking for that. What does it mean to be looking forward to the, to the second coming of Christ? Well, first of all, only those who are restored to Christ will long for His second coming. If someone is outside of Christ, not only do they have no desire for His coming, but they should have no hope for His appearing. But for Christians, we should look forward to His appearance. That appearance is our blessed hope, is our joyful hope. His second coming should be our longing as Christians. Does this mean that you should have no joys for your daily living here and now? Oh no, by no means. Quite the contrary, the present day is very important for Christians. How you live now matters. We should receive everything that God gives us with gratitude. We should receive our lives self in a self-controlled way with desires that please God in the moment. But our ultimate hope, our ultimate longing is for the return of Christ. Longing for Christ's return is fueled by our remembrance of what Jesus has done when he first came. And actually, if we look at verse 14, the way Paul moves from speaking about the second coming of Christ and reminds us what Jesus has done when he first came, between these two comings, his first coming and his second coming, one of the ways we can increase in longing for his second coming is by reminding ourselves of the purpose why he came in his first coming. The purpose for which he came the first time will help us increase our longing for his second coming. And actually, as we realize this, what happens in verse 14 we understand why the grace of God trains us to give up certain things so that we can live in a different way. So what happens in verse 14? Notice why Jesus gave himself for us. He came to redeem us. He gave himself to redeem us. But look at what exactly he redeemed us from. Two purposes for which Jesus gave himself 
redeem us from or for? First of all, he redeemed us from all lawlessness. Friends, Jesus died for, to rescue us from our own sin. Actually, it says a little more than that. He died to rescue us from all sin, from all lawlessness, not just from some lawlessness, but from all of it. Christians, brothers and sisters, do we realize that Jesus died not merely to give you and I fire insurance from hell? Jesus came not simply to rescue you and me from hell. But instead, Jesus came to rescue us from that which leads to hell. From sin. From all lawlessness. My friend, think of some of your own sinful actions or thoughts or attitudes that you live in or used to live in. Jesus gave himself, gave his own life to rescue you from those specific sins. And from many more. I have a question for you. Are you willing to be rescued from them? From all of them? I say this because there are some people who are willing to embrace Jesus as a general Savior, but are not willing to let Jesus save them from their sin. There are many who want to bargain with Jesus and say to him, Jesus, can you save me from hell? But I don't need you to save me from my sins. Or they would say to Jesus, Jesus, you can save me from these sins, but not from that one. Or not from this one. Friends, what will happen to accept the training of the grace of God to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions if we understand that Jesus' death was a death to rescue us from all lawlessness, from all ungodliness, from all worldly passions. Do you understand now why the grace of God trains us to renounce them? Because Jesus died to rescue us from them, so we no longer have to live in them. That's why the grace of God trains us to renounce them. The second purpose why Jesus died was so that he would purify for himself a people. He would purify a people for himself, for his own possession. Friends, we can come to Jesus as we are, and we should come to Jesus as we are. But realize that we are coming to the one who gave his own life, not to leave us where we are, but to purify us for himself. His own death was for our purification. What he purifies is not simply individuals, but he purifies a people for his own possession so that we no longer belong to us, but to him. And when we live our lives in devotion to Christ, 
the result of that shows up in enthusiasm for good works, for the kinds of works that false pretenders and unbelievers cannot do. It's those works which God prepares for us beforehand so we may walk in them. Friends, if you're not enthusiastic about living for God, it is possible that you have done a good job in silencing the training of the grace of God in your life. It's possible to use a language of, of, of going to gym to, to be assisted by a trainer. It's possible that you've been skipping out on those training sessions about the grace of God. It's possible. Another possibility is it's possible that some of us may have been embracing a gospel that is willing to, be, to declare Jesus as our Savior, but is not willing to say that Jesus saves us from our sin. Or that Jesus is saving us to purify us for his own possession. We don't mind believing in Jesus as long as he is not too personal with our private lives, right? Wrong. Such a gospel is a distorted gospel. Friends, we look at the fact that Paul is training Titus, is encouraging Titus what to preach. And he says in verse 15, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. These matters are important. Not only the Christian behavior, not only instructions of how to live, but connecting that life with the grace of God. The reason why we must come back to the grace of God is because the grace of God enables us to live in a way that reflects the purposes for which Jesus died for us. That's why, dear friends, the reason why godly living matters, that was the theme of the sermon last Sunday. The reason why godly living matters is because the grace of God has appeared. The reason why godly living matters is because the grace of God trains us. He's here to assist us. He trains us to give up ungodliness and worldly passions. He trains us to live instead self-controlled, upright, godly lives, waiting, looking forward to the appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God trains us in this direction because He wants us to reflect what Jesus has come to accomplish for us and for Himself. Friends, this is one of the reasons why one of the claims, one of the promises that we have as members of this congregation as a church um, in our own church covenant is the following commitment. We will seek to live, I'm sorry, we will seek by God's help to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what we commit to. This is what it means to be a community that reflects the power of the gospel, that reflects what Jesus has accomplished for us in the gospel. This is the grace of God. Is this the grace you're seeking? Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your mercy you did not leave us in our own rebellion and sin. 
Father, thank you that because of your grace, you encountered us not in wrath, not in judgment, but in mercy. Thank you that because of your grace, you offered us a way out of our own enslavement to sin. Father, thank you that now you give us your grace to train us, to live a life that reflects what Christ has accomplished for us. Help us, O oh Lord, to live in this grace, to cherish your grace, to cherish the training of your grace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.